Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, writer-director Heather Taylor. And by me, film and television editor Sarah Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here. Welcome to season two of Brains. (laughs) On today's episode, we'll be talking about weight stigma, diet culture, and how those are represented in TV shows like Shrill and Rutherford Falls. We had the chance to talk with the amazing Lauren Groves, a registered psychologist in Edmonton, Alberta, who is the owner of Ignite Counseling and Wellness Services. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. And now, to Lauren. Lauren, welcome to Brains! It's so great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Honestly, I'm so excited to be here. Me too. I'm excited to chat all things weight stigmas and the good old diet culture. Ooh! To start things off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm a registered psychologist in Edmonton, Alberta. Um, I'm also a certified body trust provider. I own a private counseling practice in Edmonton called Ignite Counseling and Wellness Services. Um, We specialize in feminist counseling and providing services to folks in marginalized bodies, whatever that looks like. Um, and trying to make mental health care accessible for everyone. We'd love to talk a little bit about fat representation and how it's helpful or not, and maybe even where it could go further. I think it might be helpful to talk, like first talk about like what is it, what do we mean when we say diet culture? Mm, yeah, mm. because I think there are a lot of it's it's a lot of things. It's not mm-hmm. just one thing because it is culture. It's a it's a societal expectation, and so it it involves the idealization of thin bodies. It involves the uh, sort of the thin equals healthy correlation. It also involves healthy equaling equals valuable like Mm. correlation. Mm -hmm. And based on those assumptions, there was actually a really good report that just came out at the end of last year um, from the representation project. And I have it in front of me because there's just so much good stuff here. Um, it talks about specifically fat women and girls. And uh, the stats that they sort of came to was that um, fat women are vastly underrepresented when it comes to um, characters in the most popular films in the last 10 years. And they said that 6.7% of all characters in the most popular films were fat women and girls. And I think the TV findings were about the same. Yeah, it's like 14 to 1 or something like that, that non-fat women outnumber fat women 14 to 1. It's like 6.3%. Um, so I would say, especially given population statistics, that I think there is a huge disparity between the representation that we're seeing in television and film uh, in terms of body diversity and what the actual population is. I think I read something that the stat was like 42.5% of, this is specifically U.S. women, have larger body types. Mm-hmm. And then only represented 
6.7% of the time is a vast difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, what message is that conveying in terms of what types of bodies we want to see or what types of bodies are desirable? Exactly. Not having that representation on screen, what effects does that have on us Mm. as individuals and as a society? I can speculate. I don't necessarily have the, the, the hard data on that, although I'm sure somebody has done some research. But from what I can tell and from like my own personal experiences as well, is it just it perpetuates this idea that like fat bodies are not something to be seen, um, that they are something to be ashamed of. And Therefore, they are not to ever be put in the spotlight or acknowledged as something that is normal, as something that is okay, as something that is valued, as something that is worthwhile. Uh, I think that that's the messaging that's really being perpetuated there is that we don't want to see you. Seeing shows like Shrill and then the pilot, because I rewatched it (laughs) before we talked, it was seeing someone make themselves small. Mm-hmm. Throughout the pilot, she said something like, I just thought if I was sweet enough, nice enough, and easygoing enough, that I would kind of be accepted. And then she said, um, Letting people dismiss me and say things about my body will fuck them is kind of how the pilot ended. And then that's how the attitude she takes forward into the series. Um, and I found it so interesting how different people either didn't like when they got told to fuck off, some of them got really angry and got really combative and like, I'm just trying to help you. And it was just so unhelpful. Totally. So. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that that speaks to the narrative that if you do live in a fat body, that the expectation is that you're going to constantly be working on it that it's a work in progress that it's it's a temporary state that you're supposed to be changing and that's the storyline that we hear most i feel like if we have a character or see a character who's in a fat body it's the the journey is them changing their body like we mm-hmm. don't often see characters that are just fat and i think rutherford falls is a really great example of like she's just a fat woman and there's mm-hmm. no talk about it. And Absolutely. It's so amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially because I think what was particularly groundbreaking about, especially like season one of Rutherford Falls, is that her love interest was a straight sized dude, which also just doesn't happen. If women are depicted, if fat women in particular are depicted as sexual beings at all, which doesn't happen. I mean, it does, but rarely. Um, they're they're not typically seen as it is as the desired uh, of people who are desired by thin people or Mm -hmm, i guess mm -hmm. quote-unquote more conventionally or acceptably attractive people yeah unless they connect it to like it's a fetish right like it's either not acceptable or the person who is interested in is fetishizing the the larger body Mm mm-hmm or the reverse is happening, that we see that a lot, where fat men, it's completely acceptable for fat men yes. to be in relationships with thinner, conventionally, again, quote, quote, conventionally attractive women, that that's okay. And 
We see that a lot in television, especially. All the time. Yeah, all the time. You see it a lot on sitcoms, right? You Mm -hmm. see the kind of working class man who is depicted usually as overweight with a conventionally, you know, conventionally quote unquote thin woman. And then that Mm -hmm. is a relationship and it's seen as being like, there's no comment on it. It just is as it is. Or it's like, oh, look what he, who he got. Like often the the guy is like, he's a champion or something. Yeah. It's interesting because I I got a few episodes into the show. The, um, uh, I think it's Kevin can F himself. Mm, Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That was, is really great at drawing attention to that, uh, that trope. Totally. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And what it would be like to be in a relationship with these men um, that yeah. are depicted in this very commonly in this uh, dynamic relationship dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's something really interesting with there's a, I don't know if you've seen the show cause it's on sci-fi, <laughs> but there's a show called um, Astrid and Lily save the world. Oh, I loved that. Mm. I just, I just saw that it got canceled and that, that, devastated me i haven't seen it but i was so excited to and then i saw that it got canceled and i was like oh okay well that sucks well, it was made in canada so i know lots of people who worked on it and it was really exciting <laughs> darn it i didn't hear about the cancellation yet but i think what was cool was that they though that their bodies and being body and being body shamed actually and fat shamed is a thing that sparks off them opening a void for demons to enter the world. Mm. Um, they, they actually really, they had things like, you know, they showed queer representation. This woman, she had a love interest that loved her back. And there wasn't anything about like what her size was or any conversation about that. It's like, I love you and you love me. And that's what it is. And, and though they, you know, didn't not show some of that, you know, fat phobia, they also were like, we can embrace a life and we can fight monsters mm-hmm. regardless of you know, what size we are. Mm-hmm. That actually reminded me of one of their other findings when you're talking about like queer representation specifically, that their findings found that no fat women in film were shown as being queer or part of the LGBTQ uh, 2S plus community. And I think only 2.7% in, in television. Wow. Compared to again the U.S. stat of it being about seven point one percent in the in the population, disability was also another thing where there was no depictions of fat women in popular film um, who were depicted with a disability. Television was slightly better at point nine percent. I don't know if that's better. It's not just film and television where we're being inundated with this weight stigma or the diet culture it's also the influencer group of people showing what is quote unquote a normal body Mm -hmm. absolutely and and like you know who's valuable and who's important and then there's this whole new thing with meds that are meant for diabetic people being taken to lose weight what are your thoughts and feelings on us being inundated with that as well as what we're seeing on conventional film and television yeah, it's interesting because the influencer culture, as much as it can negatively impact people, because it is like there is still gatekeeping happening in terms of who is popular and who is seen as valuable. There has been some shift happening where more people are being exposed to a greater diversity of people through social media being a medium where people can post whatever they want like they are in control of posting and they can share their stories and they can share information and 
represent their represent themselves. And so I think we actually are, it's sort of a bit of a double-edged sword there, because on one hand, we are actually being exposed to more diverse bodies. Uh, But on the other hand, it's still absolutely not without its flaws in terms of who is being promoted, who is getting the viewership, or the likes or the follows, who are getting the sponsorships, like, there, mm-hmm. there still is a huge disparity there. Yeah. Um, I think overall, social media is is still not, even when they are telling authentic stories, they're not, it's, it's hard to say what is authenticity when it comes to social media. I think, especially with the use of filters and the, the integration of capitalism into influencer culture. I mean, I think that they developed hand in hand, but mm-hmm. it's really hard to know when is somebody sharing something with you because it's something that they want to be sharing with you? And and when is it something that they're sharing because they're trying to sell something to you? And how do those two things interact when that's also the way that you make money and you make a living as an influencer is by getting those sponsorships? I think it gets really complicated. Totally. Yeah. And then we also, as the viewers, often parasocial relationship that you have with these influencers who then, I know I'm I've gotten caught up in it where I'm like, well, if they like that bag, I got to get that bag, right? Like, it's so Mm -hmm. cool. And that's like my Mm -hmm. buddy, but they don't know me, right? So it really messes with, (laughs) it can really mess with that brain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, and as much as I think that there are a lot of people that, that start with the best of intentions, it's the system that perpetuates that they have to be better or more interesting or more engaging. Mm-hmm. And the it's the algorithms that are choosing like what we see and what people want more of. And I, I think as much as you want to be an authentic creator, it you get in it and then the expectations start to shift and you have to follow it if you're going to be successful. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm just thinking about capitalism and commerce and how <laughs> no everything that we see in the shelves shifts based on whatever diet mm-hmm. is important right now mm-hmm. so right Absolutely. now keto everything's keto keto yep. keto keto i had a favorite ice cream that i like and they had non-dairy which was awesome for me and now they've just gone to keto and i was like damn mm-hmm. it <laughs> damn you keto but it's so shaped around diets mm-hmm. not people's allergies which would be nice but it's about oh gluten-free because of whatever whole 30 diet or keto because of a minute. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they capitalize on that and it reinforces like every time you go down that aisle, you see keto Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. keto diet and you're like, Oh, I got it. Like I should do keto. Mm -hmm. Why am I not on with all the other people doing keto? And it's the next thing to try. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. so diet culture really like it's everywhere. It's not like, it's not just on our TV, not just in our social media channels. It's in the grocery store. It's at the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. It is everywhere. So how does that affect our mental health? Oh, how doesn't it affect our <laughs> mental health? I think is a, be- is a better question to be asking. Again, like I was talking about at the beginning, that like fat bodies are something to be changed or they are a work in progress, um, that they are, that is not a, a permanent state. It is something that is, um, that is fixable or is a problem that needs to be fixed. This also dictates our food consumption in terms of categorizing foods as good foods and bad foods and uh, adds like a moral or like sort of a moral imperative to eating good foods and a judgment to eating bad foods and how that connects to your value and your worthiness as a person. Um, And it's so it it really just puts us into these boxes where we're 
expected to know the rules at all times, even though the rules are constantly changing. And I think the amount of mental energy that's put into that is something that is one of the bigger contributors to how it can impact our mental health is because we're not, we're never allowed to just be, we always have to be doing something or working towards sort of quote unquote self-improvement, but self-improvement is dictated by this cultural expectation that you be eating a certain way and you be exercising or moving your body in a certain way that you that you that you're following the rules and that takes up a lot of mental space and energy and can significantly impact our ability to feel as though we are valuable and worthwhile people that are deserving of love and respect and adequate medical treatment because I didn't even touch on how that influences <laughs> our, our medical system yeah. this belief that thin equals healthy and healthy equals good right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, It's also impacting people who are not in fat bodies, who are not getting diagnosed with things because they are being seen as being healthy and that everything is fine because they're they're thin and therefore there's no issues. And I want to say that with the caveat that that's not primarily what's happening. But I will just sort of as an example of how like fat phobia, weight stigma and diet culture impacts everybody. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point to make. Yeah. I know that I go to my doctor for my annual checkup. And when they hand me the printout, it always tells me about losing weight and how I need to lose weight mm. every time. We don't even have the conversation anymore. They just, they just put it in, they just put it there so they could, they could warn, they're, they're warning me that I'm not healthy enough. But they're and not I'm, having that conversation. Like, I feel like that's a good step. It's, it's interesting because today I was actually talking to my therapist, like right before this call. <laughs> um, and you know, we're recording at the beginning of January. So we're being inundated with what's, what are your resolutions? Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. And as much as I've been trying to like uncouple myself with diet culture, cause it is like it's take diet weights, all that stuff has taken up a lot of space in my brain for most of my adult life. Um, it came to new year's. I got a call from my doctor saying we need to book physical. And I immediately booked it as far away from the date that she called me so that I could try to lose weight prior to mm-hmm. going to the doctor. And then I right. told my therapist, she's like, that's problematic. I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so I want to talk about it. And last time I went in, I had high cholesterol. And so the first thing she told me to do was lose weight. And I didn't lose weight. So therefore, I'm bad because I didn't lose the weight. And of course, there's steps to take. Like I can be, I can disclose to my doctor and say, I don't want, give me solutions that are not weight-based or something, right? There's mm-hmm. a shift that I can try to make. As But also, that's not great that I had to have that thought in the first place. That is the question though, is like, how do we detach from this Mm -hmm. diet culture when it's all around us? Because like I was reading an article about the study that you were mentioning, Lauren, and in it, in the automatic ad placement was Noom ads. It was just all ads for dieting. And I'm like, but it's literally saying this is bad. And it's just automatic that it's picking up on keywords and populating this thing that's literally saying that this diet culture is leading to people having things like eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Like this Mm -hmm. is bad and it's actually, and and self-esteem issues and substance abuse and lots of things because people are, again, are feeling like they aren't good enough because of, you know, not being able to fulfill some of these unrealistic expectations. Absolutely. And it's contributing to, at at the core, what it is, is shame. Mm. And, And when we feel shame, it's the opposite of feeling motivated. 
Mm. Uh, We're actually less likely to do things to take care of ourselves when we feel overwhelmed with shame Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. shame tells us that this is something that's bad about you and that is ultimately unacceptable about you by other people. And therefore, it's something that you should avoid sharing with other people or letting people know as much as possible. And it can be very consuming and it can cause like a host of mental health issues in terms of like um, depression and anxiety and just generally feeling uh, like like stress and burnout and things like that, where we just don't feel like we're worthy mm-hmm. or that we're acceptable. Yeah. And that hugely impacts our motivation in terms of like what we're willing to do um, or whether or not we even feel as though we are worthy of being taken care of. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's why they are, you know, people are looking for those quick fixes like Zempec? Absolutely, they are. It is it's being seen as this sort of miracle drug. I feel like people are having a lot of success on it. If by success, you mean that they are losing weight rapidly, which I guess is the point of it. But it's not sustainable like anything, like anything when it comes to to dieting. It's not sustainable. And it's also it also can have like serious, serious impacts on people's like well-being because in some cases, like I've heard of it just like really messing up like hunger signals. And like, I think that's the point of it is to yeah. disrupt your hunger signals. And that impacts like our ability to have like adequate nutrients and to feed ourselves mm. in the way that our body needs to be fed. And, um, and that disrupts our, our relationship with food because we are now out of that rhythm of trusting our body to be able to communicate to us when and what it needs. Mm-hmm. That is like the biggest thing, body trust. Mm-hmm. I know that that's something that I, I'm still trying to figure out, but as I've been like on this journey of understanding what diet culture has done <laughs> to me, that I didn't really ever listen to my body. I just listened mm-hmm. to whatever diet or program I was on. Like, okay, I'm mm-hmm. supposed to eat at noon and I'm supposed to eat this much. Okay, this is what I'm going to do, right? Right. Or I would feel it if I overate and then there'd be that whole other guilt and shame that comes with that feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to go down the path of getting extra training to help clients understand what body trust is and going through that process? First of all, there was definitely a personal investment in it. Like I was on that path myself of unlearning diet culture and really having my eyes opened to the ways that I had been lied to. Mm -hmm. And that was (laughs) a significant (laughs) journey. And it was a lot. It was lots of lots of thoughts and feelings. Yes. Um, (laughs) And it's, it just didn't make sense to me the ways that we were continuing to perpetuate harm within the therapy space, especially because they're what I had been noticing or what clients had been telling me is that they were getting like dieting advice or exercising exercise advice as these like cure-alls for their mental health issues. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. Oh my God. From their therapists, which like, first of all, is like out of scope and not something that we are trained to be giving recommendations on in terms of, 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 diet and 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 exercise and things like that like we can make recommendations in terms of like what are your goals and how can we help you meet your goals but in terms of specifically like what are people eating or like 
how frequently should they be moving their body and things like that. That's not our area. But it's I think that that was like a testament to just how pervasive it is, that it's seen as this common sense advice that's not seen as specialized advice. It's not seen Mm. as something that you need to actually have training to be able to understand because it is just, oh, these are the good foods. These are the bad foods. This is how much you're supposed to exercise, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, this is, it's so pervasive that we just know what the right, the quote unquote right things to do are that we don't even question it. Mm -hmm. And so that was another part of it was just recognizing how much harm was being perpetuated um, within men- like mental health spaces, people coming in and, and with uh, patterns of disordered eating or eating disorders that are not being recognized or that were being perpetuated through dieting advice and things like that. So I think it was important to recognize just what is effective at actually helping people reach their goals, recognizing that health is not a goal for everybody, nor does it have to be, that that is not our, that's not for us to say what somebody should or shouldn't be doing. And health is also not necessary in order for somebody to be seen as a valuable and worthwhile person. And so if somebody's coming to me and saying, like, these are the things that I want to be working on, like, I do want to be improving my health in these ways, I now have the framework to be able to say, okay, how do we decenter weight out of this conversation and actually talk about the things that are most likely to have a positive impact in the ways that you want there to be an impact. And because so often it is like you were talking about with the cholesterol, it's like so often it's just like, we'll lose weight. And it's like, well, is that actually the most effective way of reducing cholesterol? Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't know. Dietitian would be, <laughs> exactly. dietitian would be a good yeah. person to talk to about that. That's what I'm going to ask my doctor for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you have to be even be careful with that because I went to a dietitian to ask about protein and she tried to sell me protein shakes from whatever the whatever the whatever they're MLM called is. mlm yeah <laughs> right and right. i was like okay i'm not going to you anymore i don't need you to be shilling shakeology to me and that's where you go into it meeting a dietitian and saying hey i don't want this to be a weight weight-based conversation i want to understand the nutrition stuff and i want to understand how i can lower my cholesterol this is my specific goal Absolutely. and try not to make it like just be upfront. like this is i don't want to because i could catch myself i would totally fall down that road well oh you think yeah, tell me what to do to lose weight. Well, that wait, wait, that's not, <laughs> I don't need to do that anymore. That's not healthy for me anyway. And I'd, yeah. I'd actually be really interested to know what people are saying when they say that, like, they, they say lose weight, but they don't actually tell you how. It's this expectation that you just know what that, again, just it's so pervasive that when somebody says, says lose weight, we fill in the gaps about what that means. Mm-hmm. But that's not necessarily effective or a good strategy. Um, It could lead to nutritional deficiencies. It could lead Mm -hmm. to the development of disordered eating. It could, in the vast majority of cases, be again, not sustainable. (laughs) Um, Because that's what we see in the research is that even when people are able to lose weight, like whatever, if, if that's something that's possible for them to do, that typically that weight is gained back because it's done in a way that's not sustainable, because we don't know what sustainable weight loss looks like. We don't. Going to Weight Watchers since I was 11 years old, Mm. because I felt shamed by people in my life to change. And so I, so my whole life and going on those apps and 
you mark how many pounds you've lost every day on a calendar and you post it like every week and then people cheer for how much weight you've lost. You get mm-hmm. stickers and, at the Weight Watchers meeting. And you get stickers. You get like charms. I have little – I realize I have charms still on my mm-hmm. keychain. I totally forgot that they're related to Weight Watchers and how much weight I've lost. We're, we're, those have become the – you're cheered on for the speed when you they, – they say to you one to one and a half pounds a week is probably the healthiest. But yet everyone – when you have more, they're like, oh my God, you're amazing. Mm-hmm. And then you'll see people, I see this all the time where they'll have these influencers in the in the Weight Watchers app, you'd have these influencers that would be really big for a bit and then they just disappear. Because they gained weight. Because either they gained weight and they felt shame or people were inundating them, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to like get them to help them in some capacity when they're just people, they're just other people who are also struggling and they're being put on this pedestal because look at how successful you are now, mm-hmm. even though they may be doing something that's going to be harmful for their bodies. Yeah. And and what messaging is that sending that you are, again, more valuable now that you're smaller and you take up less space? Ooh. And if you were to revert back to the way that you were before or be if your body was to change, your value and your worth would change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they they've actually been saying that that actually isn't has an impact on workplace specifically yeah. for women not mm. men i was seeing this research that i don't know enough about <laughs> but i do like i didn't read the full paper but they're basically showing that fat phobia affects women's earning potential mm-hmm. and so how do we even shift those expectations like how do we not only uncouple ourselves from this pervasive culture that we are surrounded by but then it even affects how much money we make at our job Mm-hmm. Well, and it makes sense to me. I mean, it's sad that it makes sense to me, but when they have the, you have the association that fat equals lazy mm-hmm. or that fat equals like slow or sluggish, there is that association, it, that unconscious bias for a lot of people that fat, it's interesting that there is that disparity between men and women in the workplace, but um, that I could see how fat women are being influenced by that subconscious or that unconscious bias that you're not as productive that, and, and also there's also in the, in the, uh, the rep report, they were talking about, um, the instances of fat women being depicted as stupid as being like much higher than, wow. than like straight size women. And so that's also interesting that there's like an intelligence association happening as well. Um, that could be influencing. This is just my speculations. I'm not sure what the yeah. research is showing, but that could be influencing uh, earning potential or like um, uh, opportunities for promotion or things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, any tips on how we can uh, get back to trusting our bodies or even just learning that we can do that, <laughs> that our yeah. bodies are telling us things that we can listen? <laughs> I think honestly, the first thing, the first part is the hardest part, which is the unlearning. Mm-hmm. It's mm. recognizing what is what has been internalized for ourselves as unexamined foundational beliefs about ourselves and the way that the world works, because yeah. there's so many that we we have, we don't even question that an apple is better than a chocolate bar. Like we don't even like that. That is is sort of an unquestioned like, well, of course, of course it is. But like, but why? But mm. why? Mm-hmm, actually mm-hmm. interrogating some of those beliefs and the, and a part of that is also recognizing like i said before that we've been lied to and a huge part of this is grieving the amount of time that we have spent trying to pursue something that's not possible mm, um, yeah that one's a hard one i've been yes. thinking about that a lot yes Ugh. 
that feeling is (laughs) that's an accurate way of describing that that grieving the lost time how much time have we spent into how, how much time and energy have we devoted to trying to make ourselves look different than how we are and what have we put off and not pursued and not done because Mm -hmm. we're waiting until this hypothetical mythical point in the future when our body is acceptable enough to do those things. And I'm not saying that there aren't absolutely barriers to doing some things at, at larger sizes. Like if you even look at the workout clothes and things like that, like athletic wear, and it's really only been recently that there has been an expansion of sizes to be able to have people in larger bodies fit into workout clothes. And like, even then there are still bodies that don't, um, there are clothes, there, there are bodies that clothes is just not being made for. Um, and when you think about any specific types of hobbies and activities that require equipment or things like that, there are a lot of things. There's it's a, a huge accessibility issue where there are people who cannot participate in things that they would like to be participating in because of systemic issues, because of fat phobia, because of weight stigma. So that's also something to consider as well. Those things also get in the way of us being able to um, connect with pleasure and find enjoyment in life and not feel as though we're constantly waiting until we get to this point where we are acceptable enough to participate. Yeah. I think it's about the other goals too, right? I went on Twitter and said, does anyone have any questions? And someone said, you know, how can one maintain a healthy lifestyle without dipping into eating disorder territory? Mm. And it made me feel like it's, that was very related to more about weight loss and healthiness. What should we look to when everything that we are given and everything that we are inundated with is connecting health and weight loss? Yeah, (laughs) that's also a good question. I think finding community is a huge part of this because it can be really difficult to enter into the world and be constantly inundated with things and to not feel like, hey, maybe I'm the one that's in the wrong here. Like everybody else so, so strongly believes this. Maybe I've gotten it all wrong maybe this this is the way that it, things actually are. And so finding community can be immensely helpful in that way because it can connect you with other people who are on similar journeys to you, who can relate to the impact of living in this world and being constantly inundated with things, who are, can validate those experiences. And also being around people that you know aren't going to be constantly commenting on the food that they're eating or the diets that they're on or they're commenting on their own bodies or their own weight loss or things like that. Like actually having at least like one space in your life where you know you can enter in that space and things are going to be okay. That it's there is an expectation that you're not going to be encountering diet diet talk. And that's actually one thing that was really important about like my office space is that anybody who um, is a professional who exists in my office space, like that's a rule. Um, That's a condition of being there (laughs) that we don't talk about dieting. We don't talk about our bodies in derogatory or negative ways. We, we can have, we can eat lunch together and be in a space and not 
and know that we're not going to be around that kind of talk. That's a good suggestion to to give people if they have the ability or they are making the rules or whatever, like in your office to, to state this is a diet free zone. Yeah, <laughs> no absolutely. toilets allowed. I was questioning like this anti-diet culture or this learning of intuitive eating. Why is this coming to me now? And I think it was when I was chatting with you, you mentioned how you get to a point where you realize it's not working mm-hmm. and then you have to mm-hmm. reconcile that. Mm-hmm. So I just, just a really brief, I want to, I'm curious, like, why is that? How does that manifest? I think that we can only do something so many times without it giving us the result that we're looking for before we start to clue in that like, Hey, maybe this isn't working. What's interesting with diet culture is that it's so ingrained within it that it's an individual's problem and the success or success, a quote unquote, again, success or failure, meaning weight loss is up to that individual. And if you do a program and you aren't successful in losing weight or maintaining weight loss, then it's on you for not following the program as opposed to on the program for not working. Right. And that's something that constantly blows my mind is that these programs would not continue to be in business if they were successful at providing the service that they say that they're providing. At least that's just from from my perspective of what I've observed. Is how many people fail? Like if your product's failing everybody, (laughs) the product is broken. (laughs) No, but they want you to be successful for a certain amount of time. And then enough that you'll like think it works and come Mm -hmm. back again and then when it doesn't work it's because you did something wrong and therefore they have the answers yeah and And you come back yeah absolutely and when you're talking about before like how do we connect with uh, trusting ourselves again I think that's what a lot of diet culture has stolen from us Mm -hmm. is that we are not to trust our bodies, that we are not to trust ourselves, that we need an external outside perspective to give us this information, to be able to guide us on this information that we don't have, that obviously we don't have the correct information. Otherwise, we would be doing the quote unquote right things. Mm -hmm. So, So what can we do as an individual to combat that? sort of the the question and the answer of like how do we trust ourselves we trust ourselves by trusting ourselves yeah but recognizing that when we when we are hungry it means that we're hungry and that when we're when we're craving something that that's communicating something to us about something that we're lacking that our body will tell us when we're full when we have had enough our body also communicates to us in movement, like when we've had enough, right? Because a lot of times when we're trying to adhere to these exercise programs and things like that, you can overdo it. You can do too much because you're trying to push and push and push and push yourself. And so listening to your body in those ways, I mean, connecting with your own boundaries also means connecting with your own body's needs and boundaries yeah. as well. And I think sometimes just for those who are listening who have things like ADHD. And this is my unlearning and the sadness I had was that a lot of the stuff I had around eating and sometimes like binge eating, but not like, well, binge eating sometimes was because I needed brain stimulus. Food was easy and near me. And I'm like, oh, but there's other things that also provide stimulus because mm-hmm. it wasn't because I was hungry and it wasn't because I was craving it. it was that in that capacity it was because my brain's like, you're really low in dopamine yeah, and we need some dopamine. yeah, And so popcorn is great for for making sure you don't sleep because you're going to fill your head with dopamine. Like, (laughs) 
And I was like, oh, wait, I'm just procrastinating sleep. I'm mm-hmm. not hungry. Mm-hmm. This is my brain saying it needs dopamine. Maybe I went and was just going like full on writing all day and then zing. And then I stopped and my brain's like, whoa, 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 whoa. excuse me. You can't just stop. <laughs> we need to stimulate you another way. And so I think that coming to terms with that and not vilifying food, but also going like, what am I actually looking for? Yeah. And taking that pause, taking the pause and going, oh, wait, hey, hi, body. Like, what do you actually need right now? Mm-hmm. And and not if you're hungry, drink some water. It's like, no, if I'm thirsty, I drink some water. If I'm hungry, <laughs> I eat some food. <laughs> so many lines that are just part of everyday life. With ADHD as well, like there is a, an issue sometimes with like not eating enough, like getting distracted. Mm-hmm. There's so many ways that like, I, I, yeah. and again, checking in with ourselves to be like, okay, what is the actual problem here? Yeah. And what is an effective way of solving it? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like I, hyper-focus is the thing that does it. So like my mm-hmm. therapist, for instance, has said to me, give yourself regular times for meals because you will forget to mm-hmm. eat. And so I'm only having regular times for meals because otherwise I won't eat. And then that affects me in different ways, moving the body every hour to just to get up because I hyper-focus. And so there's lots of things that our brains do that, you know, we start to, as we vilify different parts of our lives in terms of how we eat and exercise, and understanding there's it has other impacts to like our brain. Mm-hmm. This has been so amazing. And I just wanted to like kind of bring it back to film and television to say, like, what would better representation look like for you? I think just f- first off, some representation. <laughs> like, yes. Like um, in terms of there being fat characters that are not solely there for the purpose of depicting their weight loss journey or depicting Mm. the way that they're focused on changing their body. Mm -hmm. And I think getting back into Rutherford Falls and Shrill, I think that that's one of the things that they did really well is that these are characters that have other things going on in their lives. They have other goals. They have other personality characteristics. They are Mm well-rounded and developed characters that aren't just solely there because their fatness is what makes them important to the Mm storyline so representation in terms of i mean i would like to see representation in 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 many 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 more more ways than than just showing people in larger bodies but having our media better represent our population statistics and depicting that these stories can happen to a wide variety of people because that's just realistic. That's that's what our population looks like. And I think as a part of that, also having fat characters being played by fat actors. Yeah. Like the amount of times that they're like, okay, well, this character will be in a larger body. This this character will be fat. But we're going to get this, this actor to play them in a fat suit or through prosthetics or things like that. And it's like, but why? Mm-hmm. But why? Why was that necessary? Was this the only person that could have played this role? Or is it your perspective that like every fat person is just has like a thin person inside of them? And that it's a costume to be worn? Well, yeah, there's a whole show where on, it's a well, thin person well, inside of on, a fat body. Yes. Ah! On, yeah, there is. On Shrill, though, she's, someone said, there's a thin person inside of you wanting to get out. And she's like, oh, good. I hope that they're okay in there. And yeah. that was like my, my favorite line. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I think the fact that we have barely a handful 
of things that we can look at and say there is some good representation there. Or like in the case of a show like Shrill, multiple characters who are in larger bodies and they actually talk about one is trying to die. The other is like, why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. That looks horrible. Why would you eat that? Mm-hmm. Like actually questioning, like, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Why don't you love yourself? Mm-hmm. How can you stop yourself? You're so mean to yourself. How can you stop, stop yourself from treating yourself in such a brutal way? Mm-hmm. Like people actually talking about it out loud. Yeah. yeah. We don't get to talk about that. We don't get to hear anyone talk about that. And we have one show that had three seasons, which is fantastic, but it's gone. So what's now? Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. the other shows canceled and like, well, <sighs> they're all canceled. Mm-hmm. So what's next? And and they're say, and then they say, oh, got canceled after a season. We should have had it. larger bodies yeah. on screen. Yeah. So we're going to, you know, it's like always being used then as a proof why it's not right when it was praised for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And hugely popular. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we let you go, do you have any resources that you could recommend for our listeners? I was just thinking about like, I was, there's like a bunch of different things that I was thinking about um, in terms of like books or like shows to check out or things like that. Like, I, I mean, I do recommend that people check out Shrill and, and check out Rutherford Falls because they're, they're amazing. And they're by, 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 by no means like the only representation that they had that there is out there. They were just sort of the, a few that had come to mind. A good book is The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. That's that's um, often a good place to start. If anybody's interested in working with you, where can they find you? Well, our website is uh, ignitewellness.ca. Um, I Because I am only licensed in the province of Alberta, unfortunately, I can only work with people in the province of Alberta. Um, and same with the people who uh, work with me at the practice and Ignite. Uh, I have a really great team and I, re- I recommend any of them uh, to work with. Uh, there's also uh, a lot of other great therapists in, in the city that are doing this work to unlearn these things for themselves and try to provide a um, weight-inclusive practice. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, we do have a lot of Alberta listeners, so thank you for that. <laughs> well, and I want to thank you both for, for having me and also acknowledge that this is this is just the kind of like the tip of the iceberg in terms of everything that's uh, obviously like if we had, there, there can be whole series and there are full series that talk about the way the diet culture impacts us and the way that um, like what it means to unlearn and to grieve and to um, learn new ways of, of being with ourselves and, and being at home within ourselves, embodiment, um, that kind of thing. And so I'm just, yeah, I'm happy that I was able to be here to sort of give the the taster of, of what these kinds of things can look like, what an alternative paradigm can look mm-hmm. like and a way of being able to better connect with yourself and, and learn to trust that you have the answers, that you don't need that information to come from anybody else because you already know. Oh. We just need to slow down enough to listen. Oh, I love that so much. Thank you. It's amazing. Oh. Thank, you, Thank so you for leaving us on, on such a good note. And um, everyone, it's like it's time to trust our bodies yeah. a little bit, not a little bit, a lot more. Mm-hmm. And so thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. So as you know, as my sister, <laughs> I have been trying to uncouple, deprogram, what are the words, uh, diet culture in my brain. Yes. And it's been a long journey 
I'm still on the journey, but I feel like I'm getting just closer every new thing I read, every new podcast I listen to. And uh, eventually I feel like I will be diet culture free. (laughs) Well, I think it's uh, like anything, you know, we talk about and a lot of things that we talk about throughout the podcast, there is always going to be an unlearning. I think Mm -hmm. our parents did unlearning before yeah, every generation. Us as well. Like every yeah. generation is, you know, dealing with the trauma that's passed on to them or mm-hmm. to whatever. And I think this is also, you know, in perpetuated into society, but it's not even like a new thing that's been perpetuated, except the way that our standards of body changes continually. Totally. And so I'm so fascinated why, but it it's a very long um thread. Once you start pulling it, it's like you see how far back this actually spreads and um how and I wonder, like, it feels like who is actually making the decision of yeah. who is being, gets to be stigmatized. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that's a long topic. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's a topic I feel like we kind of tackle in, like, almost everything mm-hmm. we do, right? Like, yeah, where do these stereotypes come from? Where does this stigma come from? Where does this ideal come from, right? And What is the I, benefit? What is, yeah, who's it benefiting? Who's, who's making the money? Yada, yada, yada. So that's yeah. something, actually, it's kind of funny. One of the things I read, um, they're like, do the math, do the math of how much money you've spent on diet culture. <laughs> it's so depressing. Like how much money did I pay into like, and I'm going to say it to Weight Watchers, yeah. to, um, Whatever gym I decided I needed to join, whatever program I decided I needed to to take, the types of food I was buying because it was like like you mentioned in the interview, we see it in the the grocery store like oh it's keto mm-hmm. friendly or it's whatever friendly or it's gluten yeah. gluten free or it's low low fat or sugar free or and you buy these like or like diet branded food like Weight Watchers yeah. meals swerve that exactly. fake sugar yeah yes so. Yeah. Even the, I, there was like Halo Top. I remember. I remember when I Halo, love Halo Top, Top came. but I love Halo Top for, personally. And for you, like, because it's di- you. Di- well, you di- can get dairy free. No, but I don't. And there's but, more protein. And yes, well, I also don't like su- really sweet foods. There you go. Yep. Yeah. So, anyways, but it was to me. Oh my god! I can eat this whole pint of Halo Top, and mm. it's only twenty points, or not twenty. It was only eight points, or something like that in Weight Watchers land. Yeah. It's a trigger warning. <laughs> Point talk. <laughs> but but that's the other thing I just want to bring up quickly too is like I used to when I decided to like investigate this diet culture stuff, I realized I wouldn't I would never eat a simple food like granola because that was high points in Weight Watchers line. So there's certain foods that I was just avoiding because mm-hmm. I put them in this category of like this is bad for me. And then I'm like, this is delicious and it is health. Like there's health benefits to it. I'm like, why what why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And yeah. So anyway, I'm on this journey right now of like eating all the things yeah. that I wouldn't allow myself to eat, which has been interesting. Yeah. Well, it's also calorie math. Like I always do calorie math. And I mm-hmm. still it's like it's automatic. Mm-hmm. And so you start to, oh, I can eat this, I can eat this. I mean, I do look at the recommended amounts of food for a serving because sometimes I don't know how much. For instance, like I'm not really good at volume. Yeah. I just know this. I can like look at space and understand space. I just don't understand volume. Yeah. So I'll look at like how much rice should I make? Oh, a cup of rice. And then usually it's enough food for me. 
Totally. Um, and I'll make too much just because I don't understand volume. So I sometimes use those, but it's it's not based on diet. It's just more based on here's a recommended a serving size. Yeah. It's a guideline. But it's that math of like, okay, well, that's 300 calories. And if I have this, it's this. And then mm-hmm. as long as it's between 400 and 500 calories, that's a meal. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you need that information so that you know that you're actually having the right amount of food, right? And I think for you with your ADHD brain, I think that's ideal. Like it's good to have some sort of guideline. So I feel like there isn't a... It's not, some of it's not wrong. It's just like how, how consumed we are of, well, for me anyway, how consumed I have been in my life thinking about food. What am Mm. I going to eat next? How much am I going to eat? When can I have that thing I really, really want instead of just allowing Mm. myself to have it? Something that I just started doing three weeks ago now, I hired a dietitian who is a dietitian that works with anti-diet culture framework so it's Mm -hmm. not about what's good what's bad it's not about restriction but it's about making sure you're having the right types of food to sustain Mm -hmm. your body yeah and it's it was kind of interesting because on this journey of anti-diet culture I like stopped eating some of the the foods that I used to enjoy that were like considered diet foods so I've always loved cottage cheese it's so delicious but I used to eat that lots when I was dieting so I stopped eating it. And then one of the snacks she recommended was cottage cheese. And I was like, okay, well, let's, let's give this a go. And I was like, how, again, why was I, why was I not eating yeah. this? And yeah, so you can't, it's that thing ugh. of like, don't remove the things in life that, oh, it's healthy. Is it, just cause it's healthy isn't bad. Like exactly. I love, I love broccoli. I eat broccoli, uh, lots of meals. Like yeah. every day I eat broccoli. I eat tomatoes every day. I just really like those foods. So and that's great. Um, <laughs> so I eat them and I enjoy it. I just, those are things I enjoy and they actually make my feel me feel good. Yeah. I think too, it's about like, I have to always look at protein. Like mm-hmm. I talked about the one with protein chases more because I am a pescatarian. I don't eat meat. Yeah. And so uh, it's hardly hard to get enough protein sometimes. So you have to be mindful and then you don't want to eat too much fish with mercury. I mean, there's so you know, many things. Yeah. There's so many things. <laughs> I just really appreciate having Lauren on to just talk a little bit about just how much our culture surrounds that idea of, you know, who who belongs and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's talking about it's based on how fat you are considered yep. to people. Totally. And uh, I just think the more that we can create, even thinking within ourselves of equality between people, Mm-hmm. The more beneficial it will be, especially I think things like healthcare. I think there's a a, a lot of imbalance there and um, a lot of disregard, yes. um, especially depending on the weight you are, mm-hmm. and uh, and also just to allow us to live less with like have less shame in our lives. I think um, yeah. I find that a lot of things end up being about shame most things <laughs> and dopamine dopamine and shame yeah this seems the theme that we have come across <laughs> during brains is that something that's yeah shame's involved and dopamine's involved <laughs> dopamine so let's just figure that all out i just want to give a few podcasts and things that i've found really helpful over this course of anti-dicultureing myself mm-hmm. myself um <laughs> Maintenance phase is freaking amazing. And they just came out with a new episode, well, the day that we're recording. And it's about how doctors are approaching obesity in kids. And I don't like using the, the, the OB, I'm going to say obesity in quotes. So listen to the, I just, I've only listened to half of the episode, but I'm like raging. So anyway, good one. Maintenance phase talks a lot about diet culture and what it happens in our society. And they're amazing researchers. Um, 
Virginia Soul Smith has a podcast called Burnt Toast. She also has a few books. She is a fat woman and she advocates for a fat fatness, I guess. And she's all about anti-diet culture. Another great resource is uh, the Food Psych podcast with Christy Harrison, who is a, who is a registered dietitian. Uh, she also wrote the book Anti-Diet Culture. And uh, I listened to it on audiobooks so, and it was great because she voices it. And she also has a few... Uh, she has a new other a new book coming called The Wellness Trap, which I can't wait to read because I think that'll be very interesting because that's all Amazing. part of it. Mm-hmm. I think I have more, but those are the ones that I like listen to on rotation that I absolutely love. Yeah, if you're listening now and you have some recommendations, let us know and we'll share on our social media. Mm-hmm. Um, we love to share more information with people because again, this is um, we are the gateway drug to all of these <laughs> <laughs> topics. The idea is to get us thinking and then. Um, dive deeper into the things that are really important to us. Let's quickly talk about any kind of um, awesome things mm-hmm. that are going on. I think I know what Sarah's is Sarah's going to talk about. Yes, uh, <laughs> I think hopefully this is correct that you, your your guess is right. So I've been working on a series since the summer, and it's been like it's been hard work, but really super rewarding work. I've met so many amazing people on the way with this project. And so it just launched uh, on the time of this recording uh, Friday, which is like four days ago, five days ago. Um, And it's called Push. It's on CBC and on CBC Gem. There is eight episodes that will be airing on CBC and they will be airing every Friday from now, from, well, from February 24th (laughs) till the end. (laughs) And there's a bonus episode on CBC Gem. It is about a group that call themselves the Wheelie Peeps. They are a group of friends who all... Uh, live with disabilities and off most of them are using wheelchairs and it's just a little glimpse into their lives of people living in Edmonton with disabilities and how our society isn't always well how our society is not built for them and how we need to make changes in the world and also just learning about them and their lives and how freaking amazing they are so if you're in Canada please tune in um I hope I don't know how one day I'm, I'm assuming it'll be everybody around the world can watch it because I think it's very important it is also one of the first national broadcast series that has a whole cast of people with disabilities. And there's also people with disabilities behind the scenes. Anyway, it's amazing. I love it. It is amazing. Um, my awesome thing has nothing to do with brains. <laughs> <laughs> it is about, I've been really trying to, I think uh, I'll have, you know, our our sleep specialist that came on last um, season will be really proud of me <laughs> because I've been trying to create a sleep kind of end of day routine. And nice. that is including bringing something to my life that I have always loved in this reading. And so I spend a half hour <laughs> or so reading a book <laughs> with a timer so that I actually stop reading. I was going to say, is it um, like four hours? <laughs> so no, that's no, what you I, used to do as a kid. <laughs> well, no, I read all the time. I read yeah. even when I was eating, but um, I allow myself like a half hour to read in a chair in my office. And then I go and lie down in bed. So I'm not reading in bed, mm. which is really useful, but I'm reading the ninth house and I'm reading the sequel called Hellbent. It's by Lee Bardugo. She is a writer who also wrote Shadow and Bone, mm, which is a that. series that's on Netflix. Oh, that's why. Um, <laughs> I know some people who've been working on it. I'm going to shout out season two comes out March 16th. Um, if you want to support a really amazing writer and a really amazing writers and producers and actors and everything, do go watch their show immediately upon it coming out because that's now how we keep shows on the air mm. is by watching them on the platform they're on immediately. So please 
go watch it because I like, not only do I love, this is a different series. It's all set in Yale and it's about magic, but also it's really grounded and about finding who you are and um, living with things that can be difficult and trauma. And I just, I love it. I love it. I think um, I recommend that as a book series, but I also recommend to watch this series that is by the similar author, Shadow and Bone. So do go take a watch of Netflix on March 16th. Go read the books. If you want, go to the library, order them. If they're not at your library, ask them to to stock it. That's how authors actually get seen to be Mm -hmm. like that their work wants to be read. Um, So I just, I'm finding it uh, really lovely uh, reading. Amazing. In the evening. Yeah. Awesome. Murder, magic, and mayhem. How can you not like that before you go to sleep? Yes. Best thing for good <laughs> dreams. So on that note, thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. Woo! <laughs> Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor and mixed and mastered by Tony Bao. Our theme song is by our little brother, Depish, and our graphics are created by Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-I-N-S Podcast. You can also go to our website, BrainsPodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Sarah. And I'm your host, Heather. Bye! Bye.